Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sankhang Namasami In case you are wondering the, um, the little verse that uh, Anagarika Kim was bravely uh, endeavoring to recite, he only, uh, Started learning it in the car on the way down yesterday. So, is a um, this is the uh, traditional request for a Dharma talk. So, also if any of you um, on the retreat would like to to learn this, uh, Sister Tanasanti is very kindly uh, offered to help teach this. This is uh, customarily done by one of the uh, lay members of the assembly or uh, or the uh, postulants, the novices. Um, and uh, this is reflecting the principle that the Dharma teachings are only given on invitation and uh, it recounts the time just after the the Buddha's enlightenment where even though he'd been sort of in training as a bodhisattva for uncountable eons and had dedicated himself to, to total and complete enlightenment for the benefit of all beings when he finally arrived at the at the realization of truth, the, his first thought was, "This insight is so abstruse, so hard for for people of of ordinary uh, faculties to understand. There's there's no point in me even trying to explain this. For for minds which are are." Um, are habituated to um, sense perceptions and, and worldly patterns of thinking, just thinking in terms of the conditioned world, they're never going to get it. So there's no point in me even trying. This is just going to be, as he said, this will, this will be wearisome and a bother for me. Thus it was. <laughs> it doesn't mean that the retreat's over and we're all going home. But <laughs> See... Even the Buddha was put off trying to teach this stuff. So, <laughs> so if you think you're having a difficult time, so but he thought um, this thought was uh, this will be wearisome and a bother for me, as thus it was that uh, the the mind of the Blessed One was inclined towards inaction, and then uh, up in one of the Brahma realms, uh, the Brahma god Sahampati, who's a kind of um, uh, Guardian of the, uh, or sort of creator god, uh, father god, guardian of the universe uh, in Buddhist cosmology, Brahma Sahampati, who uh, picked up this thought, kind of one as it came uh, reverberating through the cosmos, picked up this thought in the mind of the newly awakened Buddha and, th- and thought, oh no, oh no, the world will be lost, the world will be utterly lost because the mind of the, of the enlightened one. Is, uh, inclines towards inaction. So then he uh, he beams down from the Brahma world, 
<laughs> and uh, appears in front of the Buddha and kneels down on one knee and is, appears as a, a young, uh, a youth, a young man, and kneels in front of the Buddha and then um, recounts the, the, the text of this verse, which is, um, uh, there are those in the world who have only a little dust in their eyes. And please, for the sake of those few, teach the Dhamma. So then uh, the Buddha used his um, extrasensory abilities, his psychic powers, and cast his vision around the world and saw that it's true. He's right. That um, there are some beings that are indeed you know, confused and lost and caught up in worldly patterns of, of thinking and perceiving and conditioned attitudes uh, of mind. But there are those that are... are um, uh, who have the potential to awaken, who have keen faculties, who are, who are not far from understanding, who are not so confused or caught up by habitual and conditioned worldly ways of, of thinking and seeing. And so then uh, he responded to the, uh, Sahamp- the Brahma Sahampati's request and said, okay, <laughs> all right, I'll teach. And so for then, for the next 45 years, he spent... Um, his time wandering in uh, northeastern India and uh, endeavoring to communicate the, uh, the subtle and uh, abstruse insight that he had discovered into reality. But, um, and during the course of this retreat, we'll, we'll kind of be uh, exploring um, different ways of, uh, of uh, looking at this, understanding this, and uh, awakening to the same quality. But it's, it is, um, I think in a way, uh, both important to recognize that the, uh, the, the Buddhist practice and teaching is based upon the fact of, of an ultimate reality. There is an ultimate reality, that which, which is unborn, undying, unaging, unailing, which is uh, completely pure and uh, accessible to every one of us. And as the Buddha said, if there were not the unborn, the unconditioned, the uncreated, then there would be no uh, transcendence possible, no escape possible from the born, the aging, the ailing, the dying, the compounded, the conditioned. Um, But because there is this, then transcendence, liberation, is possible. So uh, it's important to recognize there there is this truth, and and, uh, the Buddha uh, spoke you know, emphatically on this, about this. So there is Nibbana and there is the way leading to Nibbana. But also it's interesting within the Theravada tradition that um, the majority of the Buddha's teachings, of which there are volumes and volumes and volumes, do not go into great um, uh, rambling, eloquent descriptions of the nature of Nibbana or the nature of, of um, ultimate reality. But uh, they're primarily concerned with the way in order to, uh, to realize that for ourselves. Because the Buddha saw right from the very beginning, you can't describe this. That there are wor- you, you, it's like trying to, to drink water out of the word cup. Right? It doesn't work, huh? <laughs> the cup, the word, the sound, cup, represents you know, a certain object but you can't put water into the word. The word doesn't have enough dimensions or the right qualities to contain the water. Um, So similarly, concepts, language, 
I can't contain the reality of truth, of ultimate truth, that what we call the asankata dhamma, the unconditioned reality. But it's even though it can't be expressed or spoken of, it can be realized. So uh, when when asked to talk about ultimate truth or, or the nature of of uh, nibbana, then the Buddha would just say things like, um, "It's it is the good. It's peaceful. It's worth realizing. It is the island, the safe place." But not much more than that. You know, you get these kind of monosyllabic <laughs> pointers. So, yeah, and, uh, well, yeah, the rest, you know. Can you have a bit of poetry in here, please? <laughs> but um, he saw that, that uh, coming up with, with uh, glorious descriptions of that, of that truth it doesn't necessarily help. What really helps is the practical steps to go from our states of confusion and isolation, alienation, anxiety... Uh, anger and and uh, craving and so forth, our kind of lostness, to go from the, that experience of living to uh, point out how we bring about the, the changes within our own heart that can uh, enable us to awaken to that uh, that quality of brightness, of purity, of, of uh, timeless truth which abides, which is the very fabric of our being how to go about doing that. Is it just to pursue, the little, go, go back to the story of um, his encounter with, with the Brahma Sahampati, um, just to pursue that story for a little bit. So, having had this inspiration to teach, then off he goes. And also, by the way, you know, um, again, as I was saying at the beginning, with the um, invoking the, the forces of goodness from around you, from around you as kind of angels and brahmas and and uh, naiads and dryads and so forth. Um, you can see it as an external or an internal thing. Similarly, um, the Brahma Sahampati you can regard as that um, uh, universal, you know, creative and illuminating, compassionate force, which is a, a quality of our own nature. Some some translations of the incident say that you know moved by compassion, then the Buddha considered, as if that the, you know that Brahma Sahampati is simply representing a, a, a blazing, ins- a compassion insight arising from his own compassion that came to the surface of his mind. Anyway, so he um, he uh, decided that um, that the the people that were most likely he he he. Uh, realized that his former teachers had both passed away, Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta had both died, his meditation teachers. So he decided to go and find the, the, um, the, his former companions when he was a, a wandering ascetic and had been pursuing a path of self-mortification. He lived with five other wanderers. And so he decided to go off and find them. And on the road, he, um, he met uh, another traveling seeker called Upaka, now, to kind of get a bit of a flavor of this scene, you know, the Buddha was, was a, a big man. He was like about six foot six, somewhere around there, and was a warrior noble, so he was probably pretty heftily built. And having just been kind of completely, totally enlightened, I mean, he was a, and, he was ex- and he was extraordinarily handsome. He was known as the beautiful monk, 
in the, in the, the, the uh, people of his time who weren't his disciples, even they referred to him as the, uh, the handsome monk or the beautiful monk. So um, you have this extremely large um, uh, in, uh, kind of handsome, highly radiant figure moving along the road. So obviously this was something that was noticeable <laughs> to passers-by. So this other fellow, Upaka, is coming in the opposite direction, sees him and thinks, wow, who's this? And stops him and says, so uh, who are you, friend? You know, <laughs> obviously you've had some kind of wonderful experience. Um, your, your face is so radiant. Your, your faculties are kind of so bright and clear. You're, obviously you've discovered some wonderful truth or had some great realization. Yeah. Who's your teacher? And, uh, and what is it that you've, you've understood or awakened to? And the Buddha said, yeah, I have no teacher. I alone, uh, um, I taught myself. I alone am all awakened. In all the world, there is no other enlightened being except for me. I have awakened to the, um, to the profound, to the true, to the subtle. And so then Apaka says, well, it sounds from the way you talk that you've, uh, you, you're claiming to be a discoverer of the deathless. And the Buddha says, yes, indeed, that is I. I am the only one in all the world who is, who is truly awakened to, to the deathless, to the immortal. And so now I go to, uh, to Benares to beat the, the drum of deathlessness. And uh, as one does when one meets these kind of sparkly-eyed prophets on the street, um, Upaka said, well, good for you, friend. Uh, <laughs> and then as the story says, he left by a different path, shaking his head. <laughs> so then the Buddha was quick to learn and realize, okay, declaration uh, and, uh, and um, claiming total enlightenment is not particularly helpful. So let's try a more subtle approach. So he kind of went for the sort of English understatement method <laughs> after that. And uh, so that when he arrived um, in, the, in the deer park and met his old companions, this was when he taught the, uh, the, the teachings on the middle way and the Four Noble Truths. And again, these, these, these themes uh, will, be, will be kind of exploring and pursuing over the, the next few days. Uh, the, um, the approach of Buddhist teachings is not a dogmatic approach. And this is something that you know, we stress. Um, oh, the teachings are always given only on invitation and also the endeavor, the, the, Buddha, the way the Buddha taught, and, and those of us who, follow, who followed after and endeavor to impart those teachings, also um, try to put them forth in a non-dogmatic spirit. So I sh- uh, everything that's said during the course of this time together, it should be taken as uh, things offered for consideration. These are not kind of um, statements to be blindly believed or, or, or rejected and judged but just to, to listen, to let things enter your heart, to take them in, and then to whatever's useful and good, to take that and use that. Whatever doesn't accord with what you already understand, then just to, to leave that aside. So most of the Buddha's teachings are given in this kind of, um, in this mode of being offered for consideration and um, are put forth very gently. But occasionally, the Buddha does make emphatic statements. 
like when he will say things like, there is Nibbana, there is a way to, to realize Nibbana, there is the ultimate reality. And um, there, it's, it's interesting that the, the verb to be that is used in those situations, I don't want to get too much into kind of Pali grammar, but there are two verbs to be in Pali. There's the verb to be, which is used for ordinary kind of everyday things like, you know, I am a monk, or this is spirit rock, or today is Saturday. <laughs> it is, yeah, Saturday. <laughs> um, and uh, for, those, for those ordinary everyday words, you use the verb hoti for the verb to be. When the Buddha is making statements about an, an, abs- an ultimate truth or, or a, um, uh, a nature of the quality of being which is outside of time, which is not tied up with time or becoming, then the verb ati is used. So when he would make statements like, there is the ultimate reality, there is the unborn, the uncreated, the unconditioned, then he would use ati uh, as a verb to express this kind of timeless, infinite, uh, impersonal, unconditioned quality of being. So there, it's it's um, has a different tone and flavor to it. Now, even when um, we make these statements, uh, it's uh, the reason why they're made is to help create a suggestion to our minds and to um, give us a kind of um, pole star to orient ourselves around. That in a sense of of uh, resonate, giving us something that can resonate with our own deepest intuition. That if we didn't re- believe, if we didn't really have that faith that freedom was possible, that true happiness was possible, that true um, fulfillment of a human life was possible, we wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. <laughs> I'm sure most of you wouldn't be here. There's something in us that knows that it is possible to get past the, the rambling, chattering of the mind, the obsessive judgments and, and uh, loves and hates and um, entanglements that are, are created, the obsess- obsessions that we have about health or about uh, the past, about the future, about our appearance, our gender, uh, our faculties, the people around us, the kind of events and crises and triumphs of our life. Something in us knows that it's possible to really to know that all fully and to, uh, to find a place of, of total peace and uh, accord with all of that, with our inner world, the external world, the whole thing. Something in us knows that. So when the, when the Buddha makes those kind of statements and when we quote them, it's really just trying to, to, create, a, a, like, to create a tone, like ringing this wonderful gong here. It's creating a tone that resonates in our hearts. It says, yes, I do know that. Something in me actually knows that. That freedom is possible. Perfection is possible. Liberation, enlightenment, is possible. So that helps us to orient ourselves. But um, as I was saying before, those little, those kind of, um, like a pulse, the pole star is a very small spot in the sky. You know, it's only one little dot. So these kind of statements are like one little dot in the whole um, kind of, uh, uh, 
massive array of constellations of, of teachings. And the vast majority of teachings are trying to give us the practical advice about how to, to work with the, the conditioned mind, the habits, uh, habitual ways we have of relating to our personality, to the body, to the people around us, to the natural world, to the society we live in. Just as the, the retreat began, somebody um, put into my hand this, um, this poem, which I thought you, maybe one or two of you might, might be able to relate to. It's called Zazen. It's written by a woman called Virginia Hamilton Adair. When I first floundered in, no one knew me, not even myself. Staggering under a Saratoga trunk crammed with humiliations, bottled like urine samples, nail kegs of anger, carbons of abusive letters, chemistry quizzes with Fs, even the horse I never had, and the two casseroles left over from the diamond dip supper. No one remarked that I'd brought too much. I was wearing three fur hats, donated by opulent cousins, my feet encased in cement, ever since the failure of the patio project, and my mouth full of barbs as an old trout. No one praised my appearance. The trunk fell off my back, disgorging its unusual contents at my stone feet, which also came off. The fur hats tumbled like a moth-eaten avalanche, burying a small monk. No one noticed. My sweat began to dry, I folded myself into one piece. No one. I'll pin this up on the board if anyone wants to <laughs> read it again later, but uh, I think we'll all recognize that, that kind of familiar feeling of, of coming, upon, coming into a retreat with this vast collection of, of baggage. And here, at the end of the first day, we've only been here 24 hours, and <laughs> we chuckle. <laughs> Is that all? And even, you know, it's, it's almost, uh, I get bored of hearing myself say the same thing on the, the first day of every retreat, but it's, it still amazes me. Even when I, I teach retreats a lot, how the, uh, when you sit down and just uh, and do the sitting and walking meditation for the, for the course of a day, first day of a retreat, it's just amazing how long one day is. <laughs> the stuff that goes on in a day, it's incredible. And when you compare that to what you, to a normal day which sort of zips by, how much stuff, the kind of the, the nail kegs of anger and the, <laughs> the Saratoga trunk of the, the extra hats and the, our feet encased in concrete, you know, all this stuff which is sort of weighing us down and tripping us up and all the barbs in our, in, in our mouth like a set of old fish hooks, all the kind of crises that we've had still kind of <laughs> dangling around and catching our tongue. But that's, I thought it expressed it very beautifully, like, yeah, that's right. And how uh, she counterpoints that, the, uh, the internal feeling of, oh, there's this, and, oh, there's that, oh, raging off into some kind of profane fantasy and then crumbling under the, the, the weight of uh, self-criticism and anxiety. 
And then you, you kind of you open your eyes and like, wow, nobody noticed. <laughs> no one just saw me have that really revolting thought. <laughs> no one saw that wave of greed go shivering through my gut. Huh. The space swallows everything. Everything. The silence swallows everything. The power of, the, of the, our communal intention, uh, our communal effort, the silence of the whole group, it swallows everything. And even though those, those feelings and, and, and emotional surges seem to be so intense or powerful or real, vivid, All of them get swallowed. Now, she says in the last couple of words, no one, as in capital letters, like no one noticed. So what it's saying, and, and what it reflects it very beautifully, is how, uh, the, how powerful the subjective world can be. Our own impressions of our, of our mind, my world, my life. They can seem so vivid, so powerful. And when you're up that close to it, but then with meditation what we're doing is just getting a little bit of distance, getting, getting some space, seeing those, those uh, uh, waves of feeling, the ex- exaltations and the, the struggles and the mundane mutterings. Seeing them from a little bit of distance so they will begin to see, ah, right, it's just stuff. It's just life. It's just the body, the mind memories and feelings, the creations of past and future, rolling into being, doing their thing, rolling out again. That's all. That's what they're supposed to do. Ah! And then, as we, uh, as we settle into the retreat, and, and the, we begin to get more and more of a feeling of the, in the ever-present space of, of our own heart, that receives all these impressions, then we become one of those that don't notice. Right? <laughs> just as the person sitting next to you doesn't notice it, then we become a- more able to relate to our own stuff with the same kind of nonchalance. And, the, and it's, it always amazes me how in the beginning it all seems so colourful and vivid and alive and real. You know, my stuff, this thought and that feeling and this project and that memory, and if only this, and maybe that. And then as the, the retreat evolves, and we, the, the heart opens, and we become more and more alert, attuned to the, the space element of our own consciousness, and less uh, magnetized by the forms, then our, own, our, our very own thoughts and opinions become like the the rain on the roof, the, uh, the, the chirping of the crickets, the sounds of the birds, the rustling of blankets in the room. It's, we begin to relate to it in a similar way. Oh, this is just the sounds of nature. There goes Granny. Hello, Granny. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> oh, here comes Dad. Hello, Dad. Hello, Dad. <laughs> Here they all are, the menagerie, <laughs> the metropolis comes rolling through. And that as we develop the, the, uh, the quality of 
of uh, the meditation, that the basic, uh, the bedrock of, of loving kindness in terms of the attitude that we use is that very heart of welcoming. We're able to, to be able to welcome it all, to know it all, to release it all. Uh, the um, when we talk about nibbana, nirvana, the Pali word is nibbana, Sanskrit is nirvana. It can come across as being some kind of super duper heaven, way off some other place that they talk about in these Buddhist books. And it can seem like some kind of remote possibility. You're not even sometimes not even attractive. You know, well, will I be able to? You know, will will my friends be around? <laughs> can I take my dog? <laughs> but the uh, and again, you know, you have a, a kind of externalized or, or kind of cosmological concept of, of Nibbāna in some respects. But most usefully and most accurately, what we are talking about with Nibbāna, Nibbāna is a description of an experience, which is the, and it's the experience of realizing the absolute truth of what we are, what life is, what the universe is, what nature is. The, the, the wholehearted, the full experience of that is what we call Nibbāna. And in, in many respects, it's simply the natural peace of your own mind. The, fun, the experience of the fundamental nature of our own mind is Nibbāna. So, what we're trying to do with Buddhist practice is we're not trying to get anything special, we're not trying to get a, a state of mind that we haven't got already. We haven't, we're not trying to, to um, wipe out um, thoughts and, and feelings and kind of mucky emotions, that <laughs> painful memories that are, are kind of getting in the way. What we're doing is, is uh, endeavoring to discover the very basis of mind itself, the very fabric of mind itself. So, we don't have to go anywhere special, we don't have to get anything, we don't have to get rid of, rid of anything. The whole process of meditation is a, like a, a relaxed awakening to what is, always, what is already here, what has always been here. Now, I know many of us have heard of this, heard this dozens of times. I've heard it <laughs> countless times. But uh, this, is the, this is the kind of uh, very simple and very direct teaching to, uh, to really take to heart that this is the basic method, what we're doing. Because we can, we can relate to our minds as like being full of this stuff that we don't like and a few things that we do like and we want to keep hold of the, the good stuff, the, the, the happiness and the, the peace and the calm and we want to get rid of the, the kind of anger and restlessness and impatience and selfishness and greed. And there's a lot of getting hold of and getting rid of grasping and rejecting going on. And we can take that as our basic reality. 
But this is a, a very you know, grave and, 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 and a common mistake for all of us. So what we're trying to do is to move away from that paradigm of, of uh, me with um, me trying to get this and get rid of that to the Buddha mind, the awareness of our own mind, waking up, knowing the way that things really are, knowing the Dhamma, knowing the truth of the way things are, the way they always have been. So that it's uh, the, med- the meditation practice involves a lot of techniques, the walking practice, the sitting meditation, doing mindfulness of breathing, or a ref- um, the uh, contemplation of the, uh, scanning the body, and other different techniques that we'll, we'll be talking about uh, over the, the coming week. But all of the techniques are, are simply tools. Like I was saying last night, these are the banana skin. These are the, just the, the simple tools that are, are helping us to uh, perform a very, very simple operation, which is to enable us to relax into an, uh, an awareness of our own nature, the mind's own nature. So it's, it's rather like the relaxation that's rather to say that, like at the moment, maybe you're listening to the, the, the sound of my voice, or your, your, your eyes are open, you're looking at the shrine, you're looking at all of the are sitting here and, the, and the, the shrine behind us. It's the relaxation where the, the eye loses, takes its grip off the objects and starts to notice the space around them. Or that we, we stop focusing so much on the, the sound, start to notice the silences between the sound, or the silence around, surrounding and permeating the sound. That space has always been here. Even our bodies, the very fabric of our bodies, the cells of our bodies, the molecules, are mostly space. Any of you who've studied any kind of chemistry, physics, you know that, uh, that uh, an atom is mostly space. That uh, if, you, if you take a hydrogen atom, say for example, and you say the nucleus of a hydrogen atom, if that was the size of an orange, it's one electron. Uh, a hydrogen atom is a proton and an electron. You say the proton is the size of an orange, the electron is, um, is a lot smaller, <laughs> considerably smaller, um, say the, for example, like the size of a, a match head, or a full stop, and it's as far away from a, the proton as the edge of a football field. If you put the orange in the middle of a football field, the, uh, the, uh, the little dot is around the edge of the, of the stadium. So, the very fabric of our, and this is not just a little mind game, I mean this is actual, the, the, the real atoms, <laughs> that, that our bodies sitting here on these cushions right now are made of. Because there's something in the mind that says, oh yeah, 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 I've heard all that stuff, that was chemistry, God, this is really boring. <laughs> but that's actually the fact that your very body is mostly space. And even the solid stuff is just little kind of clusters of energy buzzing around and... and uh, there isn't really any matter. <laughs> but matter is actually just um, clouds of energy, just dense clouds of energy. So, what we are, phys- even physically, is mostly space. Even 
the what we think of as solid material objects as mostly space. Now the eye can't see that, but you can, you, with an, if you have an electron microscope, you can. But similarly, the space of the mind is hard to notice. We need the kind of electron micro- microscopy sometimes to, to witness it. But uh, because the attention is so easily grabbed by our thoughts, by our feelings, by perceptions, by pain, by excitement, by um, obligation, by duty, by um, the attractiveness of the next thing, what's next? The mind is always, the, the conditioned mind is always chasing uh, an object. That's what it's, its habit, its training is to do. So it takes a, a gentle relaxation to let the mind, let the attention remove itself from clamping onto the object and just noticing the space around the object. Noticing the silence behind sound, the space in the room, the, the emptiness, the transparency, if you like, of thoughts and feelings, perceptions. Now, again, this is not just a kind of mind game or a, or a kind of fancy idea, but this is the very gateway to liberation. This, kind of, this subtle shift of perception. And this is why the Buddha said, you know, well, there's no point in me even trying to teach this. Because <laughs> people would say, well, do things exist or do, do they not exist? Are they real or are they empty? You know, is it all an illusion or, is, or is, is everything real? And the Buddha would say, wrong question. <laughs> so you can't say it's, it, it exists or it doesn't exist. It both exists and doesn't exist, it neither exists nor doesn't exist, nor both exist nor not exist. It's uh, outside of these possibilities. So that it's, uh, it's like a subtle shift of perspective that we need to make. So that we can, on a retreat, we can get very involved in the process of meditation, you know, and this is, and it's, as we've been stressing, it's important to, you know, when you're doing the sitting meditation, really give yourself to that. The walking meditation, give yourself to that. But if we get too clamped onto the technique, onto the process of, uh, of meditation, then we forget what it's all for. But this is just a tool in order to do the job. So it's rather like playing a musical instrument. If you can be a brilliant technician, on a musical instrument. You can play technically brilliant, brilliantly, but the music can be absolutely dead. There can be no life in it. So similarly with meditation, it's very, uh, it's very easy and very common for us to be um, very sincere and trying very hard and doing everything absolutely right. But it's like a, a, a musical instrument played with, with technical brilliance but no heart. So that it's, it's important to re- remember that, that all of the techniques and, and structures of meditation are there to help us to liberate the heart. That's all the techniques are for. I was on a, um, uh, a year ago, I was invited to take part in a, a, a Dzogchen retreat with uh, Sokni Rinpoche in uh, Connecticut. And this was a, a retreat that he was teaching mostly for Vipassana students. So this was and a lot of the old kind of vipassana old guard, the 
the kind of uh, uh, Joseph and Sharon and a lot of the old kind of IMS team were were on, on this uh, this retreat. A few people from over here as well, and it was about eighty percent of the people there were, were um, people doing vipassana meditation for about fifteen or twenty years, and so uh, for a lot of the time. Uh, Sogni Rinpoche was sitting up, was sitting up the front, saying, "Okay, now I absolutely forbid you to meditate. Stop it. <laughs> Open your eyes. I can see you're meditating. No, 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 no. no. Yes, I'm talking to you. <laughs> Open your eyes. Stop it. I can see you're meditating, aren't you? As soon as he could see that that people were were trying to do something, then he would he would say, "Stop it. It's not a matter of doing a thing." What we're aiming at is not trying to do a thing, but wake up. Simply be awake to what already is. And uh, our Western mind is, uh, our mindset is very, very conditioned to like doing something. But, uh, and certainly there is training, training is necessary, there are useful tools. But if we, if the grip on the tool is too tight, if we're trying too hard, then the music doesn't flow. The, if if, and the same with meditation. If we're trying too hard or trying in the wrong way, then that very tryingness uh, obscures the very result of what we're doing. So that even though we might be doing all of the right things, our very efforting and tryingness, the, the thingness of it, obscures the fruits of what we've been doing. So uh, it, was, it was really interesting to hear what he was saying because so much of the experience that I have had of the, out of the Thai forest lineage were identical kind of teachings. That there's this, uh, this balance between, on the one hand, extreme rigor, like, you know, live this very kind of simple and frugal, austere lifestyle and, you know, keep all these rules and meditate, you know, so many hours a day and, 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 uh, and, uh, and then when you, you know, you, you, uh, you're training yourself in the way, then the teacher says, well, there's nothing to do. <laughs> just wake up. Just, just uh, when suffering arises, know it. When suffering stops, know it. That's it. There's nothing to, nothing to get hold of, nothing to get rid of. That's the end of it. <laughs> so, what these teachings depend upon is, if you like, having the technique, having the, the skills, the abilities, using the, the, the aspects of of virtue, training the mind in concentration, training the mind to be awake and to be wise, to, to reflect and consider. And then when all of that is in place and like, you know, the, the hands know where to go to make the notes, then you let go completely. And then the music comes alive. This is when the, and the meditation bears great fruit. So there's this great phrase that, uh, that uh, Rinpoche used, which was, undistracted non-meditation. I think should be introduced into all our vocabularies, and it has a partner, which uh, which wasn't one of his phrases, but was um, another monk in our uh, sangha uses, which is called diligent effortlessness. <laughs> now, uh, it's true that even in the time of the Buddha, that the 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 um, other religious seekers referred to these, talked about the Buddha's disciples, like saying. These these um, sons of the Sakyans, these shaveling disciples of, of the of the monk Gotama, you can't get a straight answer out of them. <laughs> <laughs> but 
they always talk in these weird paradoxes. You can't, you, you, they'll never give you a straight answer to a question. But I think it's important to recognize that the reason why it's, you, that there aren't, when you get to this level of the teaching, there aren't straight answers because reality isn't straight. <laughs> that it's a, not a matter of, uh, you have to use words to point, but the actual, the, the, the final leap is a wordless quality. Another example that I like to use to, to demonstrate this, uh, this kind of um, insight or the, the, the manner of holding um, the mind. Samadhi literally means, to, um, what we, is often translated as concentration. Samadhi literally means more something like the correct holding or skillful holding of the mind. It's like those uh, magic eye pictures. Are you familiar with those? The computer-generated images. When you look at them, they look just like a kind of blurry fuzz, and there's no particular image there. And they're just ordin- printed on ordinary paper. And then, if you focus your eyes, like about uh, 15 inches t- uh, or a foot beyond the the paper, and you you let your fo- the focus of the eyes relax, then slowly the uh, a 3D image emerges out of the paper that there's no sign of on, on, on kind of casual observance. It's not like the lines are there and you just can't see them. You can't see anything. And then if you, if you look in the right way and you relax your vision, then this 3D image can appear. And it can be anything from like a, you know, a cat drinking a saucer of milk to a, you know, a brontosaurus to um, uh, a Corvette Stingray. (laughs) I mean, anything. And there's no sign of it in the picture. Then the 3D image appears. And if you if if you hold the concentration right, then you can kind of look around it and you can get all the textures of it. If you get excited and go, oh wow, look at that! It's gone. (laughs) If you try too hard, like you're really determined, you can't see a thing. If you don't, if you just look at it and say, "Well, I can't see anything. There's nothing there," and you toss it away, you miss it. So it's this is exactly that kind of of focusing concentration that we're we're aiming for in in this practice. Is like you have to be attentive, uh, looking clearly. If you're looking too hard, if you're trying too hard, you miss it. If you don't try hard enough, you miss it. But as you begin to hold that focus, where you're both able to experience the, the space of the mind, the, the innate spaciousness of, of, of our awareness, and then witnessing the coming and going of thoughts and sensations and feelings and emotions and moods and action, eating, walking, talking, lying down, the whole kind of physical and mental world, we're able to, to, to hold that and feel that in in the space of awareness, then it's keeping that balance. Then, just like with the magic eye pictures, you can kind of look around here and you can look around there and say, oh, well, look at that. They, oh, they've even got the eye on the brontosaurus. That's pretty neat. <laughs> oh, it's got a little baby down there as well. Cause, and also, the more clear you get, the more sort of details come out of the pictures. So this is exactly how it is with the, with the mind, that as we begin to develop this quality of of um, perfect uh, vision, 
seeing things in this in this uh, clear and balanced way, then um, we we start to be able to move and act in the world with a, a quality of of ease and balance. We can like see the whole picture. We can explore life. We can be with our, our personality. We can and our our life and our past, our future, our world clearly and completely without any confusion. We can understand the, the, the waves of feeling, what attracts us, what irritates us, uh, what we love, what we hate, where, uh, and, and all of it we're able to appreciate with a, a heart which uh, is open and, uh, and receptive and which lets everything go. And the result of this is uh, what the Buddha called Nibbana, or the, this, this, uh, this, the result of, of knowing, of seeing things clearly in this way, is uh, the greatest happiness. Because this is really what we mean uh, by, by beauty. When, when the heart is, is unattached, is clearly awake and attuned to things and totally uh, free of grasping in this way, then life is beautiful. We're able to experience real, real beauty and delight. When the heart is confused and, and caught up and we want to get hold of this and, or something's so lovely we want to kind of keep it and possess it, then what does that taste like? <laughs> Ever had that experience? <laughs> Anybody not had that experience? You know, it's so gorgeous, it's so precious, it's so lovely that you, you, you kind of completely smother it. Like I often, in this instance, I often think of um, um, the story of mice and men. Remember the story where the, this big uh, guy called, I think it's called Lenny, had this little puppy, and he was, uh, he was kind of, um, uh, had a, a very simple childlike mind and he loved this puppy so much and he, that he, uh, he was hugging this puppy so much, that really hard because he loved it and then he loved it so much that he accidentally smothered it, killed it and that, I remember when I saw that film years and years ago I, I really, that image burnt itself into my mind and uh, it would often come back to me over the years like yeah that's what we do when something's especially good, especially exciting, especially wonderful <laughs> We clamp onto it, you can't just be with it. Similarly, even the painful experiences that we, uh, that we know, we can be experiencing tremendous grief, tremendous struggle, something that is really unbearable. You know, that, you know you, say you've got chronic back pain, or, or someone that you, you've, uh, you love dearly has died, and someone you've been with for years and years. And it's just no resolution for the pain. It's just painful. It just it just really hurts, and there's no way out. There's there's a strange chemistry that happens that, and, and I've experienced this myself, where the, you know, the tears are flowing down your face, and yet it's absolutely all right. There's there's nothing whatsoever wrong with that moment. There's pain there. It's on one level, it's totally unwanted. Who wants chronic back pain? Who wants to lose people that they love? But yet, the the heart is completely at peace at the same time. And this is, uh, 
what we're, the, the insight or the quality of being, maybe is a better way of describing it, that we're, that we're pointing to, where we're not trying to wipe out feelings or trying to make the mind devoid of thought or emotion. So it's just the kind of dazzling open landscape with no events or perceptions going on. That's not what we mean by Nibbana or, or enlightenment. It's not just kind of blasting everything out like when the lights come on, you know, <laughs> everything's gone. You know? It's, on one level everything's gone, but on, the other, on another level everything is absolutely here. The heart is fully with the experience of, of seeing and feeling and smelling and tasting and touching, of relating. But it's utterly okay. So the, as I was saying yesterday, and this is another little thing to, to really bring into your heart deeply, dukkha, which is the Buddhist word for dissatisfaction, discontent, this is the spiritual malaise, dukkha. That, the best translation for dukkha is the feeling of wrongness. That right now there is something wrong with the universe. It shouldn't be this way. Well, dukkha is that um, uh, that quality of, uh, of there's something wrong with this, or I can't, or even if it's a pleasant experience, it's the feeling of I can't keep this. I want to keep. I want to. I got to have the painfulness of beauty when you want to hold it and keep it, and it's just going through your fingers. So dukkha is that experience of uh, a feeling of wrongness. It shouldn't be like this, and that. When the heart is free of dukkha, that um, there can be pain. There can be physical pain or emotional, psychological pain. But if there's no fee- if there's no element of this should not be, or this is wrong, then it's not a problem, and we're able to be with that experience as it flows through consciousness. It takes shape. There's the grief is there for a while. It does its thing. It's there for a time. <laughs> And then, eventually, it, it burns itself away. It has to, because everything changes. Everything is impermanent. Day becomes night. Summer becomes autumn. becomes winter. That's the, the, the flow of things. And then, in that experience, we're, we're able to be with what's arising. To know it completely. And then, as it passes, then, rather than the mind kind of looking for the next thing to get interested in, as things pass and that they fade, then what, what, by attuning and attending to that spaciousness of, of mind, then what we're left with is tremendous peacefulness. Not just the, the peace of, um, uh, of being at one with things, but a, 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 a whole hearted and full and delicious peace that is uh, most uh, perfect fulfillment. So these are a few themes for you to reflect on. This is the Dharma feast for the evening. And uh, again, just uh, whatever is useful, take that with you and uh, reflect on it and whatever is it doesn't accord with what you understand or you don't, un- you don't you can't follow it or it doesn't make sense then just you don't have to reject it just just leave it to one side and let it kind of percolate you want
Sa 